Hey, hey. Yo. Welcome to Ergo. We are here. We're doing the thing. We're so happy to have you. How you doing over there, Dame? I'm excited. This is a time with a lot of opportunity and potential, and we got a special conversation for the folks here. Yeah, for uh, better or worse, it is election month here in Chicago um, because Chicago likes to be different. They hold their municipal elections in the middle of February, <laughs> the coldest month. Uh, so when everyone else is still bouncing back from November, we're like inundated with campaign ads yet again. Um, but that that particular nightmare is almost over. And we have our mayoral election as well as aldermanic election coming up at the end of the month. If you know us in our work, this is an interesting dynamic because so often electoral politics is used as a gaslighting marginalization for folks who are believing in transformational change. But in this time and in this cycle, now we have a really robust and diverse movement that has put forth a platform that is being acted upon in the election cycle. And that brings us to our very special guest, Brandon Johnson. Brandon's one of the uh, cavalcade of candidates uh, for mayor, and he's really the only one who we could imagine having a conversation with on our show. You'll hear more as we talk, but so much of what he's running on are the ideas, the platforms, the policies, and the pushes that the movement that we're a part of has been fighting for uh, for decades. Um, So in some ways, it's really refreshing to hear a candidate Rather than saying, oh, I invented the solution to everything, say, oh, no, the movement that got me here has the ideas that we need to in order to move the city forward. So we sat down with him at the CTU headquarters and had a great conversation. We assume that many folks hearing this might be familiar with Brandon and already support his candidacy and many of his policies. And if that's you, please use this episode as an outreach tool. Send this to your mama, to to your cousin, to your auntie who might just be attached to the regular local news cycle and might not be hearing as much coming from Brandon's campaign. If this is your first time hearing Brandon, we hope that, you know, you can join and support this movement. And if you're not in Chicago or if you're hearing this after the election, we also think this is a really important conversation for encapsulating what the political dynamics of this time is in our city and country. Because as we know, what happens in Chicago often happens beyond. Yeah, I mean, they ran Lori here, and then they ran like 30 Lorries in different cities across the country, and that's had its own disastrous effects. So hopefully, Brandon's campaign leads to more campaigns like this in your space, um, and maybe that's even something that you would want to help make happen. So you can go to brandonforchicago.com if you want to connect with the campaign. And if this is your first time here in Ergo, check us out. We're at ergoradio.com, at ergoradio on all socials. Just search A-I-R-G-O wherever you get your podcasts. Um, You can also bring us to your space for a workshop, a consultation. You want to make a podcast, we can help you do that. Make sure that you subscribe, review, and rate wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're curious, we had Brandon on the show way back in 2018 when he was just elected Cook County Commissioner. You can find that episode in the Ergo archives or also in the show notes for this episode. All right, Dame, let's hop into it with Brandon Johnson. Let's get to it. All right, we we are here. Super excited. We have very special guest, mayoral candidate, Brandon Johnson's in the building with us. Put up, put up, put up, put up, put up. Well, I guess we we kind of in the building with you. Yeah. We're here. 
at, at CTU headquarters. And we're going to start off with our two-part question as we, we ground every conversation. In this time, a defined time. <laughs> what a time will, it is. <laughs> but this is quite the time for you. Uh-huh. In this time, this week, this season, this year, this lifetime, in this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Brandon Johnson. What's going on, you all? First of all, the low budget sound effects. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. that's uh, that sounds <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. my big cat. Sounds like my. <laughs> sounds like my home, man. On any given evening, um, but the world is um, as I know it. The world that's closest to me. When I think about my family, they're treating me well, quite well, and I'm doing my very best. Um, so there is uh, an even exchange of love flow uh, between. Me, my wife, and our, our three children. As far as the world outside of that, um, there's still a lot of work to be done, you know, as it relates to um, the impact of the world towards, you know, my blackness in particular. Um, but I believe that I'm doing my very best to demonstrate love and compassion for the larger uh, world, um, you know, outside of my own immediate family. Yeah. Well, as we are prone to do. We we gas people up here. So throughout the conversation, we're going to be gassing you up. And brother, I'm so proud of you and grateful for the work that you're doing. You're looking good and you're looking good, right? Like you're making us look good out there, but you're also clean. But, you know, we, we, we had you on, I think it was four years yeah, ago, four years episode ago. 132. And so we, we've been you know, obviously supporting and following your political career. And as you are running for mayor of our great city, you're suited and booted. Come and on. I'm curious because we are now in the, the real depths of Chicago winter. Yeah, it's we, campaign season. It's also just cold. The, the calendar is switched. We have hit Chicago February. I came in here. You can see my little layer corner over there. <laughs> I came in here with 15 garments of clothing on to layer through the Chicago winter. How do you stay so clean and suited and maintain through the Chicago winter is my first question. Yeah, of course. So I appreciate how you um, threw that in there because I think four years ago, I mean, pretty much, what is it? Hoodie and a vest, right? Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to dress up hoodie with a blazer. um, I think that's what we got when you came to the studio. Yeah, hoodie hoodie and blazer combo. That's that's the the, the look. Mm -hmm. Now, once I'm sworn in as mayor, I promise you, you'll see more hoodie blazer. But um, we're going to hold you to that. Yeah, for sure. No doubt. (laughs) So I'm going to need some help getting some more hoodies. Um, But no, I mean, I'm just staying, um, you know, charged up emotionally, spiritually, physically, you know, trying to get a little exercise in as much as I possibly can. But, you know, because I'm moving around so much, you know, here's the thing. I hate to admit this, but I have people who move me around. Mm -hmm. So I get Real close to the door these days. Right? <laughs> so I'm not, you know, see, you see, I'm very careful. I don't want people to think that he already acting, uh, uh, acting extra. Don't be acting different. <laughs> yes, I do have a driver. Yes, I said it, and uh, they move me around, okay. you know, quite a bit in the okay. city. So it allows me to, you know, not have to like, you know, take off a whole bunch of, mm-hmm. you know. No garments. I was I was thinking, I don't even know if this is in the auspice of the mayor's office, but I was thinking, man, maybe we should change campaign season. Maybe we should get a, a July or August going on. We might get a little bit more turnout, you know? And I'm kind of joking, but I want to actually, I'm using that to segue to a serious point of electoral and political accessibility. Election days are on work days. Election days here are in the dead of winter. Um, In a conversation I was having with somebody around the last mayoral cycle, which has stuck with me, they kind of were in good faith asking about the grassroots political platform, such as, you know, redistribution into public services and really advocating for the most politically marginalized. And basically what they said to me is, in good faith, not so crudely, 
people who are impacted by police violence and incarceration, people who are in need of mental health resources, public students, people who, you know, are the, the descendants of the public housing catastrophe in Chicago are not the most historically politically engaged. And so for somebody who's moving pragmatically, is it in your best interest to have platform that is for the folks that don't historically we think of being the folks that are part of the electorate? And so for you as somebody who has run on this, I think, important historical political platform that advocates for the most marginalized, what would you say to that type of I don't even want to call it realistic, but like pessimistic pragmatism. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a fair question. You know, look for folks who may not be aware, but I started my, you know, real act of public service when I became a public school teacher, teaching in Cabrini Green and uh, teaching middle school. And Cabrini Green really captures the the essence of the city of Chicago, right? The type of dichotomy that exists within our economy. It plays out in the most dramatic way. Because the wealthiest neighborhood in the entire city of Chicago, and arguably one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the world, um, is just in view of my students from their back windows. And to your point about the historical disaster of how public housing in particular was snatched away from, from our people, my students woke up every single day with bulldozers staring them down in the morning, preparing to destroy that public housing. And so, you know, that is really the dynamic that exists in the city of Chicago where people wake up every single day chasing down an economy that's behind them while everything in front of them is crumbling, right? And that's really the impetus behind uh, my run for mayor, to disrupt and to destroy and finally retire this tale of two cities and usher in um, a stronger, better, safer Chicago. And so speaking directly to that dynamic that's a responsibility that I do have as someone who has benefited from the public space. And it's unfortunate, to your point, that the engagement electorally or politically, especially during electoral seasons, um, plays to, I guess, the sensibilities of the most likeliest voter. Look at where that has gotten us, though. You know, we're not speaking directly to the dynamics in which whether you are impacted in the dramatic way in which we just described, there are people in the city of Chicago that do not want to see a stratified economy where those who have get more and those with less, whatever they do have, is taken away from them. This is not to suggest that what I just said um, is not accurate, because I do believe that, um, and our campaign is reflecting this, multicultural, multi-generational movement to disrupt, to dismantle, to, re- to retire this tale of two cities. Keep in mind, though, the type of despair that we described in Cabrini Green or in neighborhoods like the one I'm raising my family in on the west side of Chicago and Austin, the type of disinvestment that has caused tremendous harm in these communities, that despair is starting to leak out into other communities, right? And so now everybody feels a little less safe. Everybody starts to feel economically insecure, right? And so this is not to say that people did not already have, you know, in mind what a better Chicago could look like, but there is far more motivation when that harm that has been concentrated in one particular section is starting to leak over into other communities that have not otherwise had those experiences. The motivation is a little bit different. And so now they're listening closer to the type of movement that we've had around these structures for some time. So there is a benefit 
to us speaking directly to the harm and to the pain because more people are witnessing the outbreak of that pain, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. And it, the witnessing also is paired with the like, you know, increased disillusionment with what has been offered to try to prevent that, right? Which historically has been like insulating and isolating people who are able to have the the money to from the impacts of that disinvestment. Um, and as that premise, whether that's through policing, whether that's through restrictive housing, as that like has proven to not keep the people who even have in a good place, I do think that that potentially like, you know, maybe brings some new ears that if we ran this campaign or if you were running, we, if you ran this campaign 20 years ago, people with the ability to maybe would have still been holding on to some of these false premises differently. I think that's right. No, I I think that, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know. What was it Lauren Hill that had in one of her songs, um, when rain falls, it doesn't fall on one man or one person's home. Right. But what we have seen, though, unfortunately, is that the hyper concentration of poverty and violence still rests in the very neighborhoods in which you were describing earlier, in particular, black and brown communities, working class, low income, poor communities. We've had to endure the status quo. To some extent, our resilience, though it has given us the ability to survive a little longer, it is clear that it is not sustainable. And so that structure and that weight that has forced um, the first floor to the basement, now there is a shock in the entire home. Mm. And so though the impact may not be as dramatic, you know, those of us who are being crushed under that weight, we have been left with very few options at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. And so n- now it's not just simply about trying to maintain a balance of living under like really insecure foundation. Now that foundation is being ripped. And so we got to get up out of it. Right. And that is, again, why I'm running for mayor of the city of Chicago, because that that floor the ground in which the failed policies of old that have literally left families behind, that weight is crushing people. And I believe a better, stronger, safer Chicago is possible if we actually move on an agenda that actually speaks to to the least of these. Right. And names of the harm. I mean, as a starting point, too. Um, I, I want to just go back to in that something that you named of this uh, kind of dual experience of chasing an economy behind you and uh, having, I'm trying to remember exactly, but the bulldozers in front of you, that destruction in front of you. Mm. We'll get more specific, but I want to zoom even farther out than we already were for one second of, you know, the way people talk about school closures, um, maybe because it's a little more recent, we don't in the like electoral or mainstream political conversations talk about the loss of public housing kind of with the same fervor at this point like i feel like it's just kind of accepted as history meanwhile it's very recent um yeah there's a way that the emmanuel administration is is marred in shame for the school closings that the daily and emmanuel administrations are not for the closing of public housing and i think it's it is kind of this pivot point in this long trajectory of right you had industry basically the structures that built the city that built that floor then leaving and providing no infrastructure to address the effects of that and then really they're not being anything to replace that because when you build a city around industry and then there's no industry, then you, you've lost your base. So I'm, I'm curious for you, like, 
we can say this is an important political moment in the city of Chicago, but understanding that that history, where do you feel we are right now, kind of in that transition point? Yeah, that's a very uh, a profound question. First of all, where we are, I like the fact that you all are naming it because that's important. You're absolutely right. It's why I described my motivation for running for this office through the lens of public housing, neighborhood, and education, right? And the economy, right? Because it's in the midst of all of that where all of these interests collide. And those at the very top, of course, continue to tell people that they take from that it's not personal, <laughs> right? And that's what powerful people say to poor people when they're coming to grab It's just stuff. business. Yeah. It's just business, right? And so as we describe and talk about school closings, you know, over 1,000 children missing from that, from that act of rage against public accommodations. It was really a violent act. And we don't talk about it enough. The fact that there are literally 1,000 children that the Chicago Public Schools, the city of Chicago has no account for. I believe 223 specifically were just from the west side of Chicago, close to the, to the neighborhood in which I'm raising my family. And same thing with public housing. It's just the, the destruction of it, um, the dismantling of it, with so much rage is something that we don't name enough. And that's why when you ask like where we are, we are at a pivotal moment where the city of Chicago either completes that plan of the full removal as much as possible of black people in particular, or we rebuild infrastructure to repair the harm and the damage that has been done. And I know we say it all the time, right? right? The, the election of our lives, <laughs> right? I don't know if I'm going to go quite that far, but if we don't shift and change course and direction now, and we can get into that, those dramatic investments that we need to make to shift, then the plan that has been in effect for, you know, we're talking comfortably 30 years, the completion of that particular uh, frame for the city of Chicago where poor people are forced to live in the outskirts, right? Much like what happens in developing nations. And the central business district or the city is where those with means are concentrated in. And so whether it's transportation, public schools, access to public health, um, good paying jobs, affordability, the so-called, as we have often been referred to as the undesirables, will not be in the view of those who wish to come here to either live or to tour, that they do not have to be confronted with the obvious despairs in which have been created, right? And so that's why when we talk about the 65,623 roughly families that are unhoused, of which almost 20,000 of those unhoused are students who are doubled up, you have an administration that, that that is looking to sweep that out of existence without actually addressing it, yeah. right? Without actually solving it. So there is a collision course, right? That we are in the midst of, of either completing the, the, the plan of what I like to refer to as Negro Removal Act, right? A set of different actions that have been done intentionally, housing, jobs, transportation, schools, um, healthcare, to remove Black political power in particular from the city of Chicago, while also alienating communities by pitting communities against one another. That dynamic we're in the midst of now. And the goal of this campaign is not just simply to highlight that, 
but to deliver and render real political solutions to the political problems of which have been created. Mm. Yeah. And so in talking about naming those harmful political realities and this transformative agenda you're speaking to, I really want to talk about the, the, the structure of your campaign and I think what it looks to say about what's possible about how you can govern. Because, you know, in my kind of broad strokes understanding of Chicago political history, politics is kind of determined by these ethnic enclaves, these religious enclaves, and or economic interest groups, right? And so, you know, your campaign has some of those traditional structures. You are very rooted as a black man in the west side of Chicago. You know, we are here at the teachers union. You have the teachers supporting you. But also, you are brilliant and eloquent, but the things you're pushing for didn't just come from your own brain or your own. It came from a collective political multifaceted movement that's been building for at least a decade here in this city. And that movement has been a big part of getting you to where you are in the race now, whether that's grassroots organizations, independent political organizations, and like activism to, to be you know forefront about it. And so tell me about that coalition. Tell me about how that informs the politics that you're pushing for. And I think more than any politician I've seen in Chicago, it's not just a lobby or it's not just you and what you think that is building your platform. It's really a collective grassroots contingency that's been working really hard. T- speak to that and how that af- will affect you as the mayor. Yeah, that's, um, well, you all are on a roll today. I mean, I don't know how long y'all been putting these questions together. But we there's, see. You know, there's no way you came up with that just on the spot. Uh, <laughs> but but I mean, for real, like, thanks for naming that. Yeah. Look, that's hard, you know, to have, you know, such a dynamic collection of voices and interests reach this point to legitimately be in a position to turn the fifth floor over to working people, low-income people, while also making sure that those with means still get to participate, right? We're not exclusionary, right? And I know I'm about to do something that every politician does. They quote Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., <laughs> right? Where we at? We're Here at we go, right? 20-minute mark. Exactly. So I got 20 baby. minutes in before I quoted Reverend <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. Doctor. But right, right, exactly. <laughs> we actually you know, we had it all queued up as a sound drop in case you forgot. <laughs> exactly, we got it in post. Right? For you, yeah. But but here's what he said. He said that if the labor rights movement and the civil rights movement were to ever collide, what enormous potential it would have. Yeah. Like we are literally in the midst of experiencing the potential that our ancestors dreamed of. Now, what he did not necessarily prepare us for um, entirely was how do we balance those interests, right? Is a campaign the healthiest place to balance those interests? <laughs> I was gonna ask, how's that going? Yeah, Can we talk balance. about that after I'm sworn in? <laughs> um, are there some challenges there? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but look, I come from a large family. Many of you all know I'm one of 10. My parents were also foster parents. So we had a lot going on all the time, every day. We had one bathroom. All right, so we're constantly like living in the midst of like chaos, right? And somehow we figure it out. But because we are in a position to actually connect and realize that dream, there is, as a social studies teacher, we have to get this right, right? <laughs> and so, so what it looks like is Delia Ramirez, the congresswoman whose mother comes up from Central America gives birth to Delia Ramirez at the county hospital, the same county hospital that I went to 
growing up with asthma, utilizing the Fantas Clinic. Whether you came 55 North or 57 North, or whether you came from Central, South America, the continent of Africa, Europe, the Middle East, the multicultural, multi-generational movement that has propelled our agenda front and center, where now everyone on the stage is trying to identify with our movement, whether they call themselves a progressive or whatever, we are balancing that with a presentation that is open, that is honest. It is aspirational. You know, I'm, I'm going into communities like Little Village where you meet a retired woman who's on Social Security who had been saving up a little bit from her Social Security check for weeks just so that she can contribute to our campaign. When you have Abuela, right, who is literally saving up her, her Social Security to contribute to this movement, that that's a powerful testament that this is not something that people are tickled by. This is a moment where people are more than compelled. They are literally putting their time, their body, their resources within a movement that is accelerating to some extent the type of advancement that this city and quite frankly, this country deserves and needs. And so I'm humbled by it, right? And so you you, you have Delia Ramirez, but you also have the son of a civil rights icon, Jonathan Jackson, a congressman, Delia Ramirez, a congresswoman, Jeanette Taylor, a hunger striker. You have Byron Sigcho Lopez, an identifiable, Carlos Rosa, democratic socialist, just old-fashioned Democrats, right? I mean, there's- they still there's, make those? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right? I mean, and so th- that in and of itself, to be in a moment where young people, our elders in our community, community-based organizations, right? You mentioned independent political organizations, progressive labor. Like, this is the dream of our ancestors, and it's manifesting. And that's why there's such a drive for us to succeed. This is not simply about like trying to prove a point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is about winning in this moment. Yeah. This is about winning in this moment. And that's what our campaign reflects. I just want to shout out all those people doing all that work, right? There are a lot of people in the larger context who's been made this moment possible. And there are a lot of people who I know personally are sacrificing right now for this campaign and the possibility of this moment. So for those who hear this, like shout out to you and thank you so much. Yeah, and, and the way that you named kind of the the breadth and the unique potential of that alignment, I think is really valuable. In as much as you you know can, as much or as little as you want to share, I do want to talk a little bit about, even if it's not within the campaign, maybe more in the electorate, the dynamics between uh, labor and other types of grassroots power. Because I think it, it's something that I've watched you navigating with a, a lot of um, ability and like adeptness that I think is really complicated. Um, and, and, you know, maybe, Dan, do you yeah, want to we, jump yeah. in there? I mean, there, there's two things that I think about in this dynamic that I want you to speak to. So one, we were just on WVON last week, right? So shout out to WVON, like the voice of like OG Black what did Chicago. You, what did you say going on? VON was like? 
You said it was like stepping into a Jet magazine. Yeah, yeah, it was like stepping into a, a, a 1987 Jet magazine editorial, right? And and I've been on there a couple of times. Did you have to explain to your generation Jet magazine? And Google it. Oh yeah, yeah, we Google that. Google that. I'm sure there's a documentary about it. About that. Um, we're right in that transition. My grandma collected them, uh, and so in that conversation, twice now I've had callers come in where I was like, I think it was a May Day activity I was coming in a few years ago to talk about. And like this old head, like 50 plus, 60 plus feel of like the coalition between black liberation, black people and unions is inherently corrosive, right? And that they they not out for y'all, the unions and us. And then there's the, I don't know if you remember, the first time we actually met was in a church basement. It was the first time I met you and Stacey Davis Gates. Me and John A. Strong came and sat with y'all. And it was after some of this came up in protests after, you know, police violence of like how the union and how movement is getting along. And like, that's when I met the black leadership within the CTU space. And like, since that moment, I was like, oh, I know what they're about. So personally, I have that purview, but it's really hard because when somebody says, yo, there's anti-blackness afoot, you can't be the one be like, oh, no, it's not. Like, you know, these are my people. And so as somebody who's existed in both of those spaces and know very well, like the black Chicago, but also progressive unionism, how do you speak towards that reconciliation? Because there's history behind that. Yeah, I mean, look, we have to be, first of all, very honest and intentional. The honest part is there has been breakdown where the interests of labor did not align itself with the interests of the broader community. Again, this is something that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. expressed multiple times. In fact, 2932. Um, say, we gotta get a I got one more for you, by the way. He talked a lot about how frustrated he would be. And there's a, a very powerful quote where he says, thank God for SEIU. And there was a moment within the civil rights movement where labor had to make a decision. And there's institutional racism that exists in all of the structure. If we can name that, and those of us who are part of those institutions where anti-blackness goes unchecked, there's a responsibility that we have to root it out. That's an ongoing dynamic, right? I mean, those who have critique over labor and its participation in white supremacy, I don't want to sound dismissive of it, and pick an institution. You know what I'm saying? I mean, let's. I mean, we can go through the church. We could we could talk about labor. We can certainly talk about government. We could talk about corporations, and so there is a responsibility that we have within the institutional spaces in which we occupy to call it out, to name it, and to root it out. Right, and this is. This is why I'm I'm hopeful in this moment because, you know, as an organizer with the Chicago Teachers Union, I can tell you there's been countless times in which the community provided direction on how we should react to the type of assault against our people in our communities, right? I remember the first time we marched past Rahm Emanuel's home. You know, that was a decision that was provocated by community organizations, something that labor was incredibly reticent to do. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so interesting to think about. You know what I'm looking saying, right? Looking it. back at that, that wasn't, I mean, labor hadn't done, you know, you know, those type of like real provocative actions mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. when you show up at a politician's, you know, front door, mm-hmm. right? And so there are countless examples, you know, with sustainable community schools, which is a model um, that has been 
push by the Chicago Teachers Union where community-based organizations can have more say-so in the direction of the student outcome and what the school community needs as a whole. Long way to go, don't get me wrong. And we're taking steps there. You know, so in this moment, in terms of like striking the balance, is like, look, organize people and organize resources. That's the recipe for any movement that you want to be successful. Have to have organized people, organize resources. Labor and community, labor and faith, in this moment, we're demonstrating our ability to actually coalesce around the values that ultimately will protect all of us while also giving room and way for voices that may not come with the same level of resource or ostensibly power that labor would have, but yet they still bring a very powerful dynamic. It's reflected in our policy points, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, I have a public safety plan that's going to come out I don't know when this is going to be, be aired. Next week, so, you know, it next be week. Out so then, my yeah. public policy plan will be out by the time this airs. And we have people on the ground that are helping us with it, right? Do you want to talk about any of the points of that? Obviously, we haven't seen the whole thing, but I've heard you talk a little bit about it. If this conversation is an opportunity for like a good faith discussion about safety, let's say, as opposed to the the kind of like sniping of debate and stuff like that. Are there anything that you want to like, since you have a moment, elaborate on, explain mm-hmm. things that you feel like you know, maybe don't come through in a 30 second soundbite in a debate. Yeah, this part does come through. No one in this race has greater incentive for the city of Chicago to be better, stronger and safer than a black man raising a family on the west side of Chicago. And if someone needs me to explain that, they need to just read the news. You know, my oldest is 15, middle child, Ethan, he's 10, Braden is, is, is eight. And raising a family in Chicago, particularly on the west side of Chicago, in Austin, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is not something that's on the news, to your point. This is, this is what we live every single day, and we, we're living it. And when Owen rides his bike, I feel like a hypocrite, but I hate it. I worry. You know, bike rides end in tragedy. And we've experienced it, maybe not as dramatic as other families have gone through, but we've experienced it. And so... We got to get it right. And what we're doing and what we've been doing has failed us. We spend more on jails and incarceration than we do on the education and the health care and the well-being of our people. And that's why I've been very clear that if you want a safe city, and I believe the people of Chicago want one, that you have to do what safe American cities do around the country, and that's invest in people. You'll hear a lot of politicians talk about how much they love Chicago, and I'm one. But I talk more about how I love people, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, that I was raised to love people. And it's a very powerful force. You know, you all know my father's a pastor, so, you know, I got to throw a scripture in there, right? Love covers a multitude of sin, right? 30, 35, 30, but it's a different reverend, right? <laughs> Love covers a multitude of sin and right, and they cast out fear, right? And so that's what my proposal ultimately does. And so I love our people enough to hire young people. Um, my administration is going to stand up a youth hiring program that's going to be year round, creating opportunities for young people to be seen and to know that they are valued and loved. There's a direct correlation too, though. With youth employment and violence reduction, that's what works. I'm the only candidate that has made it very clear that I'm going to pass the treatment, not trauma ordinance. 
that will provide frontline, thank you, frontline professionals to provide the mental health services that ultimately people are looking for. When almost 40% of your calls that come through are mental health crises, we should be responding accordingly. West side of Chicago, many people will remember Quantonio and his neighbor Betty who came to his defense. The only equipment on that scene were guns. They would be alive today if we actually had a response that was capable of handling that particular dynamic. Here's the third thing. It's not just reopening our mental health centers. It's making them public, public employees. And the reason why that one's especially critical for me, my older brother, who was my hero, had untreated trauma. And because of the way we were raised, our faith, you know, my brother would ask for forgiveness and he would pray and he would cry. But he had this trauma that no one really identified and he died addicted and unhoused. I believe he gets to see his grandchildren if those services were available. And so public safety is not just simply a policing strategy, though what we do know is over 40% of the crime that takes place in the city of Chicago, it happens in 6% of the city. We already know where there is a greater proclivity or propensity for violence to happen. But these are also neighborhoods that have been disinvested in and neglected for ages. I talk about Garfield Park a lot. That's one of the communities that I represent as a county commissioner. It's been described as a developing nation because the violence and poverty per capita reflects that. How is that possible in a city that we are referring to as a world-class city? So no one should be too poor to live in one of the richest cities in one of the richest countries at the wealthiest time in the history of the world. Like we can change that, and we can change that by investing in people, and that's what a better Chicago, a better agenda looks like under a Johnson administration. And to the mental health clinic being public, I think that connects to what you just said in that if what is offered is you know publicly funded but it's contracted out or it's run through nonprofits, that actually – as we've seen with charter schools, as we've seen with privatizing, uh, you know, ha- affordable housing, that contributes to that divestment that we talked about in the macro form at the beginning. I just wanted to. And, and f- before we move on, I also just want to acknowledge and thank you for one, the vulnerability of sharing what your family went, has gone through and want to offer love to your brother, Leon. Right. And so I just want to acknowledge his spirit and thank you for bringing him in this conversation. And, and, and we love you. Thank you. Um, and and from this point, again, like I have deep gratitude and appreciation for your commitment to treatment, not trauma. That's been very the show is very connected. You know, our work off mic has been very connected to that that effort. And it's really important. And folks can learn more about treatment, not trauma if you want to check out a couple episodes ago. But I want to speak to the field a little bit. And I'll start with our with our current mayor. I was really repulsed with, you know, we, we had the union conversation with the, the ridiculous claim of something to the effect of FOP and CTU are two sides of the same coin and just like... Yeah, it's, it was very, there's good people on both sides. How offensive moment. that is to to say. So we don't, we don't have to spend time on that. I just want to like, in framing that, I think <laughs> that's really not true because the FOP should be really uh, grateful about their odds <laughs> in this upcoming election because when on the stage, every other candidate is promising an increase in police investment, an increase in police hire, and an increase in police power. For those listening in the future, this is in the week of the release of the video of Tyree Nichols. And now, unfortunately, we have to use another martyred name to have a, a realistic political conversation because just a few weeks ago, 
It is if people forgot <laughs> the harm of policing on, on our community. And so what, what I'm really interested in is you're not only the only candidate who's naming police as you know, a, a regressive conservative law and order response to the violence and harm happening in our community. You're also the only black candidate who has taken that position. And that's really interesting for me. So I, I want you to analyze that reality because what's surprising for me is that even from an insincere, dishonest, politician, slimy, co-opting place, there's not a recognition that like, I guess it's back to that same conversation of the people who care about the impact of police and other people that I'm not reaching for their vote or something. How do you understand it? Are, are, is it ideological? Is, are, do you think it's lobbying and financial economic interests? Do you, do you think it's people truly believe it or they're just like stuck on old politics? The fact that you're, you're alone on this corner while folks are still trying to pretend to be progressive. How do you, how do you understand that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, they're just stuck. Okay. I mean, you, I mean, you nailed it on the head. They're just stuck. They're stuck in, like a 40 year old frame that really wasn't the right response then, <laughs> right? Just check it out though. It's called locking up our own. I would Beautiful encourage book. readers to like James move Foreman, through that. Right? Yes. Yeah. You know, where it outlines, you know, 40 years ago, a very similar dynamic. And there was pressure that was applied. The city council of DC at the time um, acquiesced, you know, to the status quo which ultimately led to the prison industrial complex and the so-called war on drugs. Well, you et cetera, were a social studies teacher. Definitely, yeah. right? <laughs> For folks who are familiar with the text, basically the, the point in it is how the black political class, often from a sincere place, yes. were almost at the forefront of developing mass incarceration. Like we think of it as like the Klan or like yes. Ronald Reagan or these bigots coming with like new era lynching in, ropes. In fact, I had this conversation recently with another social studies teacher. It was... Here we go. This is the third one. Actually, I get four because okay. this one I wasn't. You did it right on, on time. Actually, forty-two <laughs> right? five. So, Look at so, that. Uh, Martin Luther King Sr. was a part of the leading charge, calling for more black police officers. Right, right, right. Again, a very sincere place, thinking if we were policing our own communities, the type of brutality uh, we, we wouldn't be, you know, subjected to that. Well, Renault Robinson here with the Ever American Patrolmen's League being like a attempt to reform from within and being ostracized for it. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And so the same old tire fail politics that have left communities behind are recycling just these bad hits. And, you know, again, the responsibility that I believe that we all have in this moment is to not just be reflective about the failures of old, but as I said earlier, we have to be intentional about everything that we do. My job in this moment is to be responsive to the movement that brought us this moment. And being responsive to it means we have to do what works, mm -hmm. right? And right now, what we have been doing doesn't work. Million dollar blocks, right? Austin at the front, NPR study, a half a billion dollars to lock up my neighbors in Austin and my children do not have a publicly funded neighborhood school to attend because they happen to play string instruments or they play sports that our local school communities do not offer. You know, the fact that we spend more on jails and incarceration than educating our people, that we would rather develop buildings than mines, that, that's unconscionable. And as the next mayor of the city of Chicago, I'm going to love people enough to invest in them. And anything short of that is just, it's, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. <laughs> yeah. So in being mindful of your time, and we'll, we'll, we'll move towards wrapping, you know, I do think uh, one of the uniquenesses of this city that I'm, I think you've probably been able to see 
in all of your work, but especially in this campaign more than most, is just the absurdity of how electoral politics works here and the ingrained, like forget about the product of what comes out of it, like the processes of it. Um, I remember once I was helping out someone running on a campaign and I just met, you know, the cohort of electoral workers basically who've been doing this, whatever candidate comes through, check the petitions, make the line. Like there's a whole infrastructure that's very much like, you know, we could, to be polite, call it old school, to be more direct, call it, you know, what has fed corruption. And so I'm wondering, just almost like to a, a comical end, have you seen anything that's just been like so absurd that you like can't help but chuckle? Yes. <laughs> seen and heard. You know, I think what I see more than anything, I see politicians running out of fear. But I also see politicians trying to rebrand themselves all at the same time. You know, where no one in this race has released a budget plan. And so the only thing they can do is critique the one that's there, mm -hmm. which is mine. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants better transportation. Everybody wants better health care. Everybody wants a safer community. And then when you start talking about funding it, it's just like, well, Brandon's going to raise taxes. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm not going to raise property taxes. And yes, I'm going to ask the rich and the wealthy and big corporations to pay their fair share in taxes. Yeah, the whose taxes is exactly, the question that never gets answered. Yeah. Right? And so- the city of Chicago, 71% roughly of Chicagoans, when we were pushing for the progressive income tax, said that the wealthy should pay their fair share. Chicagoans are actually quite clear that for a better, stronger, safer Chicago, what organizers on the ground have been doing, pushing the agenda of what investments would mean for communities, that no matter where you are in the city, that organizing work, people are responding to it. And so for, for, for organizers... Who, who are committed to, to economic and racial and social justice, know that your platform is being heard. Know that there's always a danger of folks trying to co-opt our platform, but this is why we do it and we build it together. I'm already demonstrating by the plans that I'm presenting. These are living documents. I'm saying before I'm sworn in, go ahead and take a crack at it now. You know what I'm saying? You know, let's come to an understanding of what a better, stronger, safer Chicago needs to look like, where those investments need to, to, to take place. But yeah, like hearing politicians trying to rebrand themselves in the midst of their policy platforms that reflect 40 years ago, it's obviously very, very laughable, but it also is dangerous. And this is why, like, I think some people, as you were indicating earlier, that sometimes there's a, a lesser proclivity to actually like engage because the work that we do and the sacrifices that we make Politicians will take advantage of those moments. And then when we do place our trust with our vote, you know, they break promises much like Lori did, though, just for the record, your audience has always been clear <laughs> about who Lori was. And and I'm like, look, I don't have to be under the age of 30 to like pay attention to the details. And we did. And unfortunately, you know, some people missed those. I guess it was like 74% of people missed it. Um, but- Oh my God, that was the- it was Just for- The, the Twilight whole, Zone. It's like, like, it's like of all the ghouls you could have selected, <laughs> this is the person, you know? But, but to wrap, let's bring it back to you. I think right out of that point, you mentioned co-optation. And so for you right now, like 
we have the privilege of being able to like touch you. We're in this room with you. We've seen you. We know you. And there's been some trust built. <laughs> you came to WHBK for us. <laughs> like, come on. But if I didn't know you and put my passive analysis hat on, you know, the fear is always co-optation, mission drift, and just like being handled. Beyond like the the brilliance and eloquence and, you know, knowing you on a personal level, what is your plan, structure, foresight? What how do you prevent this other historical dynamic that has really destroyed so much of our movement possibilities over the last 50, 60 years of our shining stars, such as yourself, having to be dimmed by the reality of the political landscape mm. or choosing to be actually, yeah. let me know. No, that's it, right. you know, like, no, that's, that's right. actively something people choose to do. Look, again, I'm going to make myself a little bit more vulnerable here. And I, and I know folks don't necessarily like to hear this, but it's my truth. Yes, I do believe in co-governance. Um, yes, I believe that as an elected leader, that I have a responsibility to make sure that I'm holding true to the promises that I have made. And my wife always reminds me that there's no one on this earth who works harder than you. And you know what her biggest concern about me running for office? Will the movement have my back? Now, now look, I, I don't want people to think that I am trying to escape you know, this question. What I'm saying is that accountability works both ways. Now, I've demonstrated with the Justice for Black Lives, the budget for Black Lives, like a brother has put my value system, it is clear, it's on the line. And our movement, which has been a very exhilarating gush, this injection of so much hope and promise, and that's what gives me life and energy. I'm asking the movement to hang in there with me. The, the powerful forces that are already trying to disrupt our momentum, our success and we win, they don't go away. So we can't go away. Look, I'm going to hold the line because it is a matter of life and death for the family that I'm raising in Austin. And my story is not unique to most people who live in the city of Chicago. We, we all have incentive, some greater than others, to make sure that we have a better, stronger, safer Chicago. And so when it is time for us to pass a budget, we do what we did to get us in this position in the first place. We go back to the neighborhoods and we, we put the paper on, 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 on the table and we, you know, we get out the whiteboards. Some of you all still got chalkboards, right? <laughs> get out your notepads, whatever. Please, and let's figure, please right. switch to whiteboard. Yes, thank oh, you. Yes, on behalf yes. of all of our- <laughs> Let's get a collective grant <laughs> pool to get all the chalkboards Honestly, out of here. Honestly, Damon is one of the uh, major political forces behind the butcher paper movement. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Appreciate a, a, a butcher paper auxiliary. That's right. right. We get it done. You get your sticky <laughs> a notes. A subcommittee, yeah. <laughs> you get all of it and we put our, our heads together and we figure out how much we can get. Right. When I was passing one of my first major pieces of legislation on the county board, the Just Housing Amendment that eliminated discrimination against those who were formerly incarcerated seeking housing. Long story short, the developers, the real estate, you know, these folks are pushing back hard. There are three things on the table that were left. And I come back into the room with the movement and I'm like, yo, we got two of the three. And the movement, the table looked at me, changed my life. And they said, Commissioner. They didn't call me Brandon. They said, Commissioner, can you step out? I'm like, well, wait a minute. Why do I got to leave? Yeah. 
And it was in that moment I realized, man, I'm a real politician. <laughs> you know, I, I feel my feelings were hurt for a second. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm one of y'all, right? And 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 we came back. And I came it back. It was like the, the, the meme, the like greetings, fellow kids, like the high school. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. And so when I came back in the room, they said, "Look, if you believe we've gotten as far as we can get, and of the three things that are remaining, we can get two out of them, we can live with it. We're going to have to grow in that capacity." How do we get as much as we possibly can? And now there are times where we should be able to get it all, but in an economy that is as diverse as ours, in order to help rid um, this economy on its addiction of jails and incarceration and look towards investing in people to keep our city strong and safe, the movement, we take a deep breath when I'm sworn in. In fact, we party hard. <laughs> and then we get right back to work, y'all. Let's hire young people this summer. Let's start whipping the votes for treatment, not trauma. Let's start looking at the mental health centers that we need to open and where we prioritize. Like that work begins immediately. And so as long as folks are willing to hang in there and throw down, you know, I believe that the accountability that's going to be needed both ways, I think we're going to look up uh, one day and, and see the power of my last quote, of Dr. King's vision. 5437. <laughs> Here we go. Of the labor rights and the civil rights movement colliding and that enormous potential can be realized. Well, thank you for for walking in the in the middle of that potential and in, in the work you're doing. Um yeah, how can folks find you, your campaign? Let me, let me give you some gas be, again, oh, real quick, as we as as we get out of here, you know. As a young black man in the city, as somebody who's been politically active as part of this movement. One, have been physically abused <laughs> doing this work, uh, but have felt marginalized, politically gaslit, even like demonized in ways and not taken seriously or just ignored. And as 2020 was happening and there was this moment of like seeming political crisis, there was this look around of like, who's gonna take on this responsibility of facing this machine and facing this whole city? And it was a bunch of people saying like, we don't want no parts of that. And so the, the sacrifice, the sacrifice your family is making is not something that's not going unseen. It's appreciated, it's valued. Um, and you standing up there with and for us, we're not big on electoral you know, things as like saviors. No kidding. This is <laughs> a really important moment for building power and I think for making more freedom with our people. Um, and so sincerely, thank you very much for yeah. doing this work and getting us this far. And, you know, we won a little slither, but this part of the movement, ergo, <laughs> we can speak for, uh, and, and we got your back. Oh, wow. So, so well, that's, you. um. thank you for those words and thank you for the work that you know, you've been leading and the work that you all have been doing collectively. Um, it brings me a lot of joy to know that there are voices that could have been my former students are pushing and propelling our, our country forward. That's actually, um, it's quite exhilarating. And of course, I would hope that people will lean in more and they can go to brandonforchicago.com. Yep. You got needs, <laughs> folks yeah. want to volunteer, folks yeah. want to donate. Is yeah, there, so are there specific pushes that you need in yeah, the next so, couple of weeks? Yeah, definitely. So definitely go to brandonforchicago.com. There's links there in which people can donate. Um, they can sign up to volunteer. We are literally having dozens of house meetings all over the city of Chicago. I oh, really yeah. I wish. I saw you follow the the shoes off rule. <laughs> so check it out, that. man. Yeah, so like, my, so can you imagine what my family text thread looks like <laughs> after that like who i'm about to say something offensive never mind they said all kind of crazy stuff in there but no i mean like that's the cool part about this i wish i could bring everybody with me to yeah. see like living rooms packed out in ravenswood 
and in Inglewood and in Jefferson Park and McKinley Park, right? So again, brandonforchicago.com. If you want to host something, if you want to organize something, if you want to door knock and canvas or phone bank, if you want to donate, whatever you have, like the movement is 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 alive and well. So thank you both. Of course. I'm just glad you wore your good socks. That day. <laughs> <laughs> We're at uh, Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And we'll be back reshaping the culture of our city and moreover the more liberatory and creative. Much love to the people. Peace.